Hey, podcast listeners, I've got a special offer to share with you. You can get access to all existing and future podcast CEUs for $79 subscription for a year. And because you're amazing, you can use my code SUP20 and get $20 off. A year's access to all podcast CEUs for $59. Check out the details at speechtherapypd.com and use my code SUP20. This week, I'm delighted to host Jenna Castro-Casbon on the ins and outs of private practice. This was such an eye-opening talk for me, and I know that you'll leave with a better understanding of the unlimited possibilities a private practice could be for your career, if that's what you're into. (laughs) I'm totally intrigued by this idea of flexibility and autonomy, and totally scared of it all at the same time. So yeah, it's a mess. I tip my hat to all of you amazing SLPs out there with your own private practice and the ones who want to do one. Like, do it, go for it, try it out, see what happens. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and now let's hear from Jenna. Hi, Jenna, how's it going today? It's going very well. Thank you for having me, Leanne. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to our talk today. Um, I'd love to learn more about private practice, all the things that go into it. So I hear that's like kind of what you do and like what you help people with. So that's right. All day, every day and night, really. (laughs) (laughs) I don't sleep much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, go ahead and tell us um, a little bit more about yourself, what you do, um, your practice and your background. Sure. So my name is Jenna Castro-Casbon and I help regular speech pathologists start successful private practices and also start them, but also build them too. So um, I have my own practice, um, which I've had since 2007, and I've been teaching people how to start their own private practices since about 2009. And over that time, I've taught literally thousands of people how to start their practices. So yes, this is something I know a thing or two about. Um, I also am, I wear lots of hats. I have two little boys, ages three and six, so they keep my wife and I very busy. And I also get to do some clinical instruction work, and I get to teach a course at Emerson College. And I also have a podcast, the Private Practice Success Stories podcast, so those are like all the things I do, which is a lot. <laughs> yeah. You're a little bit of everything. Um, hey, um, are you like one of those really high achievers? Do you really enjoy like never having a free minute? Is that you, Jenna? Kind of. I wouldn't say that I'm a high achiever, but I really have a hard time sitting still. It mm. may be more of like the undiagnosed ADD uh-huh. and, um, <laughs> than high achieving, but you know, I I just don't really sit still well. I I like to be occupied like all the time. Oh my goodness. I thrive on sitting still and having like (laughs) nothing on my calendar. (laughs) I I would like to be more like you. (laughs) I could probably stand to be a little bit more like you too, Jenna. (laughs) That's why we're such a good team. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) It's all about balance, right? Indeed. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, um, I have so many questions, like all the questions, but I'm going to start with my six questions, my who, what, when, where, why, to help us to get to know you a little bit better 
and our topic before we go full on into our topic. That's so good. my first question is, who is an inspiration to you? So that's a great question. And I thought about picking like one person, but then I was having a hard time deciding. So I thought about, you know, what kind of person inspires me? And I think it's anyone who makes a change in their life really for other people and for the better. Mm. So um, I've been really thinking a lot about that quote from Gandhi that be the change that you want to see in the world. And so I feel like, you know, people who really inspire me are people who see things that aren't going well or well enough and, you know, decide to themselves make changes and or help others or even institutions make changes to help everybody out. That's awesome. I'd have to agree with you on that. I find that really inspiring, those types of people. Um, I think for me, another one are the helpers, like people who are helping. Those yes. are very inspiring people. Yeah. All right. Next question. What is your 2020 goal? So my 2020 goal is to help 1500 SLPs start their private practice this year. Last year, um, in one of my courses, I helped just shy of 500. And so it's a big goal to kind of triple that, but I feel like I can do it because I, you know, really want to help people change their situations if that's what they want. Mm hmm. That's awesome. That's amazing. I love that. Like high dreaming, like go out there and get them like no holds barred. Like that's awesome. Cause it's very frightening because all the things that you might think that could happen to interfere with that. So I love it when people are like, this is what I'm doing. Now I'm going to go make that happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. My next question is where did you graduate from? So I graduated from Emerson College in Boston, which is actually where now I do some clinical instructing and teaching work. So I feel like it's fun. Like I, I was here and then, you know, I was away for a long time, but always kept in touch and, you know, did alumni stuff and supervised graduate students. And now um, I'm here in a part-time capacity, which is, which is perfect. That is awesome. I would love that. Um, I don't know anything about Emerson, but they should call me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it's nice. You know, I think that we should all think about, you know, what are our various dream jobs or dream roles and mm. spend some time trying to make those things happen for as long as it makes sense for them to happen. Right. Yeah. So yeah. this was something that I always wanted to do. I don't know if it's something that I will always want to do, but it's something that I've, you know, I feel very strongly about, you know, helping. Well, this is kind of funny like helping people become who they want to be. Mm -hmm. So I've spent a long time helping speech pathologists become private practitioners. And a couple of years ago, I was like, well, maybe I might be interested in helping, you know, uh, students, speech pathology students become speech pathologists, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's kind of similar, actually, what I do, even though it's I'm, I'm helping different populations. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Like you, you've kind of honed in on like what your key... Oh, uh, how can I describe it? Like what motivates you? Yeah. Like kind of like your passion, like that's, that's your niche. That's yeah. like what drives you and what keeps you intrinsically motivated. So it's really awesome that you found two completely different roles where you can meet that need and experience that reward system. Yay. Yeah. Get it girl. Get it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. My next question, how do you like your coffee? So I like my coffee with like one sugar or a half a sugar and cream. So I like it to be like, you know, kind of creamy, kind of milky, but like not too much sugar. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. I decided I needed to wean myself off of sugar. And so now, um, if I'm having coffee with like something sweet or dessert, then just black. But if I'm mm. actually drinking it because it's the morning and I need to wake up and be perky, yeah. then I've definitely got to add some cream to that because yeah. black coffee is special. <laughs> black coffee is special. I've tried to do that a couple of times and I even tried that one with the butter in it. Uh huh. Bull bulletproof coffee, right? Yeah. And yeah, that wasn't for me either. <laughs> I don't think I've ever tried bulletproof. Um, I just can't imagine why I just haven't been drawn to that. Yeah. Weird. So yeah. strange. So strange. <laughs> All right. Next question. When was the last time you did something scary that paid off? So, um, appearing on a podcast, this is my very first time that I'm appearing on a podcast, which is a little bit scary, I guess. Um, I have my own podcast and I interview people all the time for it, but I haven't done, you know, any appearing on other people's podcasts. So that's, uh, that's very exciting and, and, um, kind of fun for me. Awesome. Well, I feel so honored that I get to be your first host, I guess. <laughs> I love it. The role we're playing. I'm so thrilled. Yay. Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. So my final question. Um, as we go into our topic, this is a perfect segue into it. Um, why would an SLP want to start a private practice? That's a really good question. So I, th I think a lot of people think that people start private practices for the money or for um, some sort of prestige or something along those lines. And I think I thought that was true for a long time. And what I've come to find out, though, is that most people start private practices for the flexibility. Most people want to be able to spend more time with their kids or spend more time with, you know, working with the kinds of clients that they want to work with or, you know, um, having certain days that they work on certain days that they don't off thinking about their schedule. So that's actually what motivates most people to get into private practice, not really about the money. You know, I think SLPs just aren't usually driven by money. Not that that's a bad thing, but that tend to, you talked about intrinsic motivation. That's for most people, not what their intrinsic motivation is, but people do want to be able to choose how they use their time, mm -hmm. whether that's with family or with the kind of work that they're doing with clients. So that's what I have found to be true for why people decide to start private practices. Awesome. I'm really glad you pointed that out because I think, um, well, before you said that, I think I would have thought like the whole point of getting into private practice is because that's where you can make more money. And like a side benefit is you get to pick your hours so you can work as much or as little as you want while you're still making all kinds of amazing bank. But in reality, it's because what our traditional jobs offer are not flexible schedules. You know, it's very much this hour to this hour, X amount of hours a week, usually 40. Um, they, I don't know. I probably can't go into generalities like that because everyone yeah. has a very different situation. Yeah. Um, but you don't get to choose your hours unless you're PRN. Yeah. And so Absolutely. with a private practice, you do get to choose your hours and it's not at the whim of another company's needs. Yeah. Or even the scheduler, right? The, the schedule sees you have an open spot and they put whoever in that spot. It could be the kind of client that you really enjoy working with or it could be a kind of client that you, you know, 
don't know as much about that diagnosis or about that, you know, treatment, or it just doesn't light you up in the same way that other ones do, which, you know, all of us have, you know, preferred areas that we like to work with. So it is nice to take back that control. I hadn't thought about that aspect either, is that you get to choose the type of um, population that you will work with. So if you do want to specialize within a certain realm, you get to do that, but you're exactly right. Um, when we work for other companies, we don't get to choose who we see. It is who's on the docket, uh, who's next, you know? So yeah. interesting. Ooh, yeah. this is Lots of very food appealing. for thought for people. Yes, I like it. <laughs> All right. So now we're ready to transition into um, how you got started in private practice. And um, so go ahead, tell us how that got started. So this is a good story, or at least I think it's a good story. It's my story anyway. So um, I did my clinical fellowship at Spalding Rehab in Boston, and it was my dream job. You know, it was, you know, to get a CF in a rehab hospital that's, you know, nationally ranked and everything else is like everyone's dream come true. And for the first part of working in there, it really was like, I loved my patients. I love my coworkers. But as time went on, I started to kind of feel like I didn't have much control that I wanted to, right? There were, you know, I had no control over the hours. There was a lot of limitations as to how long I could see clients that needed to be maybe seen for longer. You know, what we talked about earlier about, you know, you just got scheduled with a certain kind of client, whether you really felt confident about that or not. And so over time, I started to feel um, like a little bit stuck, right? And it was around that time that I had lunch with some of my coworkers and, you know, we almost never got to have like an actual sit down lunch where we talked about things other than work. So I always cherished those kind of lunches. And so I was with these two colleagues and um, they started talking about their private practices. And I felt really silly in that moment because I didn't realize that they had private practices, right? They both worked with me at the hospital part-time, and I didn't really think that much about what they did when they weren't with me. But it turns out that they both had their own small but very successful private practices on the side of the job at the rehab hospital. So of course I had a million questions because I this whole thing was just kind of unfolding. So um, one of the things that they said that really kind of got me interested, I, you know, I asked them about their office space. So I said, well, where do you, do you see the clients? Where's your office? And they both said, well, we don't have them. I was like, well, <laughs> what do you mean? I thought that you had to have like a brick and mortar clinic. Where do you see people? And they said, well, we see them in their homes. We, we go to them. And they, uh, they had their own practices, not that they were like seeing people together. And I was like, oh, huh. I didn't really think about that. I just assumed that having a private practice meant that you had to have like a freestanding clinic somewhere. And so the next thing that I asked, I asked about like payment. I said, well, like, you know, do you have to deal with insurance or like, you know, how does that work? And they both said, oh no, we, we just do private pay. And again, I was like, oh, wow, that's like, that's a thing. And there's enough people to support that. And they were like, yeah. And I was like, well, and, and like it pays well. And they both just smiled and was like, Yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, interesting. And so then they asked me, you know, they say, you know, Jenna, you seem very interested. This is something that you would like to learn more about. And I said, well, sure, but I'm like pretty young. I was only probably about 26 or so at the time. I had, I had my C's and I was a little out from having my C's, but not too far. And they said, well, you know, we started when we were 
more like your age, they were probably in their mid to late forties at the time. You know, is this something you would want to start like now? And I was like, I, I don't know. I've, I hadn't thought about that, that. Right. I, again, thought that private practice was something that you did way later in your career down the line after, you know, you had years, decades of experience and expertise and training. And so it really was this kind of light bulb moment that all of the things I thought were true about private practice, it turns out were not necessarily true. Like I had some um, myths and some ideas in my head. And so, but I said I was interested or I'd like to think about it anyway. And, but I didn't know anything about getting started, obviously. And so they offered to help me and they offered to get me set up. And the whole thing was happening like kind of quickly. And so they said, you know, that has anyone ever asked you if you treat private clients? And I said, well, yeah, people have asked me, but I've always referred them to you. And they laughed and they said, okay, well, next time, like, don't, you should keep them for yourself if they, you know, if they're in line with, you know, what you think you can do. And I was like, wow, okay. That, cool. So then they, yeah, you know, they, get, they got me set up with, you know, a business license and um, uh, liability insurance and all of the kind of things that you need to get, you know, up and running. And then, you know, believe it or not, a couple of weeks later, someone asked and, but it wasn't a client that I felt comfortable working with in, in a private like capacity. So I, I passed and I said, no, and I did give their name back to them which then they're like, Jenna, we thought you were going to do it. I was like, I know, but not these people. So then, (laughs) so then a couple weeks later, and then, then I was worried, like, what if I had just let my one and only opportunity like go by? Right. And I felt like a little bit mad at myself or something for having maybe like blown my only chance or something. But uh, you know, a couple more weeks went by and an old friend from grad school had heard I was maybe going to try to do this and she had a, a client who was looking for therapy for um, the gentleman that had aphasia. And so um, that I was comfortable with. So they're like, oh, you know, do you want to talk to his wife? They're looking for a private therapist. And I was like, yeah, I'd like to. So um, I talked to the wife and it, I really, truly felt like I could help her husband out and her out. And so that was my first client. And after that, you know, it just like I kept getting more and more and I started shifting my hours from my um, regular job at Spalding down to, you know, part-time hours and then, you know, shifted all together. And it was really a cool and very unexpected way to get started. And I think that that's something that we, you know, some people go into this private practice thing knowing from the beginning that that's what they want to do. And some people have a drive to do that. And other people have, you know, weird opportunities that just come along and that's what gets people into it. But, you know, no matter how it happens, I think it's a really um, exciting and wonderful option for people if they're interested. Nice. I like that. Um, so many things that you mentioned during your story, like I want to pull apart. Um, like, for example, uh, when you talked about private pay, mm-hmm. um, how does that work? Like, do you then or now like take insurance? Like, can you do one or the other or both? And what's the benefits of either? Yeah, so you can definitely do both. The, if you are going to work with adults and if they have Medicare, you do have to become a Medicare provider. So that's one thing for people listening to be thinking about. Back, back in the day, and truthfully, when I got started, 
you used to be able to have adults essentially sign a waiver to say that they were okay doing private pay. The rules on that have since changed. And the, the best place to get information about that is from ASHA because they're the ones who feel very strongly about this rule. But I would say that that's the best place to get information on that. There's a lot of people who do both insurance and private pay. The recommendation that I have for my students and my programs is to start with private pay because although sometimes the clients can sometimes be harder to find initially, it's a much cleaner way to get started. Becoming an insurance provider is often something that people have to do eventually when they start to grow their practices, but there is a lot of you know, time and waiting involved in the application process and then also in learning about you know, the specific kinds of documentations required, billing codes and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's definitely something that you know, most practices end up doing, which I'll talk about later too. But I, when people are very first getting started, that can be overwhelming and I want people to be successful from the beginning versus hit like early roadblocks, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, okay. All right, thanks for that. Okay, so um, let's get into some common characteristics of SLPs with private practices across the U.S. Yeah, so one of the things that I talk about a lot on my podcast is that there's no one way to have a private practice. So my podcast is all about interviewing SLPs from across the country and actually even the world about their own private practices. And I've interviewed people with, you know, who just do pediatrics, who just do adults, who are in rural areas, who are in Manhattan, who do animal assisted therapy, who only do evaluations, like all kinds of different things. You know, people who have staff, people who work by themselves. So there's no one way to have a private practice. Having said that, um, there is an ASHA document from 2015, so it's a little bit older. It's called the Healthcare Survey, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make sure, Leanne, that you have a link to it on the website. You guys can also you can go to the ASHA website and download it, but it goes through what the common characteristics of speech therapy private practices are from a demographics point of view. So okay. from the document, I wanted to pull like the top five things that I thought were the most interesting um, and share those with the audience, if that's okay. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay. So the first um, like fact, um, it has to do with payer source. And again, remember this data is from a couple years ago. So it's, it's probably a little bit different now, but um, 72% of speech therapy private practices accept private pay. Okay. Now that doesn't mean private pay only. But of all private practices, 72% of them accept um, private pay, okay? 48%, so about half, do private health insurance. So these are your like HMOs and PPOs, your Blue Crosses and all that kind of stuff. So about half accept those kind of insurances. Other ways that private practices are paid are through agency work and also school contracts. So I mentioned this, that's about 43% of private practices accept school contracts and agency work. School contracts are a really nice way to get started and start to build your private practice, especially if you're in a more rural area that doesn't support private pay as much. You can do very well like doing these fill-in contracts for schools, like covering maternity leaves or 
helping with staffing issues. And you do that as a private practice that is contracted with the school. Does that make sense? Yeah. So would that be you as a private practice business owner, okay, like the sole proprietor type of business, dealing directly with the school on a contract basis and therefore not going through a contract company? Yes. So you would have your own contract with the school. And so some people do this themselves. Some people hire their own independent contractors to do this or have employees do this. It's a way to, you know, fill your day and fill your caseload without like marketing for individual clients. You're Mm -hmm. doing like a larger contract. Okay. So that's a way that some people get started and start to get that name recognition. And the thing that's nice about school contracts is it's often like very steady, very good pay, right? It's not like some of the ups and downs. If you have a contract for X number of months and you know what your total money that you're going to be collecting is, that can be really nice, especially for beginners to have that like kind of locked down mm-hmm. versus maybe not knowing exactly where your next client is coming from. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so private pay, private health insurance, school contracts, and then 34% do Medicaid and 20% Medicare. I would think that that 20% of Medicare has probably increased as well, probably ha- is the Medicaid. Remember, Medicaid is at the state level and Medicare is at the federal level for people who are older. So what the takeaway information from this is, is that there's lots of different ways to get paid as a private practitioner. And you can decide which of those ways feels right for you and feels right for your practice. Um, Could you tell me a little bit more about how someone might decide that without knowing much more about it. Like, how would I know if like, I want to go, I want to take one, some, none, or all. Yeah. So it's, it's much more overwhelming to take all than like some. The way that I tell people to start is to do one. I often, I teach people to start with private pay only until they feel like they can't sustain that. And after that, then they move on to applying for one insurance company, right? There, there may be like five popular insurance companies in your area, but I te- you got to do a little bit of research to figure out, well, which are the most popular with, say, kids, right? If you're a pediatric um, SLP, what is the most popular with, you know, adults or, and do a little bit of research to see what, um, what reimbursement is like and what, you know, how many sessions are approved, which are easier to deal with. If you apply to five different insurance companies, there's going to be different rules. There's going to be different ways to bill. There's going to be different reimbursement rates. It's an awful lot to keep track of when you're just getting started, which is why I usually don't recommend that people like go from nothing to like all of the things. Okay. Yeah. Right. All right. That makes a lot more sense. Okay. okay. So, so that has to do with payer source. The next like piece of demographic information has to do with location. So about this is kind of split. 41% of speech pathology private practices are in suburban areas, 39% in city or urban areas. So pretty equally likely that you'll have, would have a practice in a, you know, either a city or just outside of a city and only about 20% in rural areas. Now, rural areas are often underserved, right? 
So I've spoken to lots of people on my podcast who do have very successful private practices in rural areas. They do have to be a little bit more willing to travel, but they often are the only one who are providing services in that area. So some people come to me and they say, well, Jenna, I live in a really rural area. Will I be able to sustain it? And the answer is, as long as you're willing to travel and go to people, yes, because you're really the only game, not even in town, but maybe in like a hundred mile vicinity, right? Mm -hmm. Versus if you're in a more um, urban area like Boston or New York or Los Angeles, there could be like tons of speech pathology private practices. But even that, you know, I've yet to talk to someone who's in a market that really feels like everything is tapped out and there's not enough to go around. There are plenty of clients to go around. So it doesn't really matter what part of the country you live in, you can start a private practice in your area. Okay. Okay. The next thing is about kids versus adults. And that's a lot of things that people thing that people want to know is, well, I only see kids or I only see adults. So 53% of private practices see kids, 47% of kids see adults. So that means that, you know, some, some there's, there, I mean, it's a fairly even split actually, but more private practices see kids. I feel like I, I hear more about private practices that see kids that may also see like a handful of adults, right? They may be more pediatric in nature, but like they'll see, you know, the occasional persons with Parkinson's or aphasia, but there are also private practices that are exclusively um, adults. So whether people are doing um, fees, whether people are doing voice, you know, swallowing, cognition or whatever, you can decide, you know, what type of people you want to work with and see them. And if you want to be a generalist private practitioner and work with everybody, that's okay too, right? You get to decide. Yeah. I like that. I like that kind of mentality. You get to, it's, I mean, it's your company, it's your business. You get to make it fit you. Yeah, absolutely. And you can specialize later. You know, a lot of people ask me about specializing too. I recommend that when you're first getting started, that you see everyone and anyone that you are comfortable with and competent to be treating, right? Don't just treat anyone that you, you know, can't help, obviously. (laughs) That would also be like unethical. But, you know, you want to work with people who you truly can help. And if even in the beginning, you're like, well, I don't really want to do, um, I don't know, pediatric feeding, but like, you know, I took some classes in, in grad school and I did a placement and I, I can still do it. Then, then why not say yes to that opportunity? It doesn't mean that you're signing up to do it, you know, for the long haul, right? But you can decide to specialize later. But when in the beginning, I really want people to get confidence, get a caseload and get income and also make sure that this is something that they really want to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Are, I, got, I got two more fun facts for you. If okay, you good. Because I was like, are those all the common characteristics or are no, there more? Got two more. The, two, right. the last two are shorter. So 96% of private practitioners have master's degrees only, like as their terminal degree. So only 4% of people in private practices have doctorates. So I think that's another misconception that people think that you have to wait until you're an expert to start a private practice. Instead, I recommend that people become experts because of their private practice. Mm -hmm. So don't think that you like have to get a PhD to have a private practice. You can do it like with just a master's, right? Okay. And then the last little fun fact 
is that, and this one I think I say for last because I think this one might be actually the most surprising to people, which is that 64% of private practitioners are in private practice part time. Mm-hmm. One of my misconceptions was that you either were in private practice or you weren't, and you were, you know, full time or nothing. And when I, you can interpret this statistic though two ways. One is that they are exclusively in private practice, but in a part-time capacity, or they could be in private practice on the side of another job, right? So they could have a full-time job in say a school. And as they're starting out, have a part-time private practice, you know, in the afternoons, evenings, weekends, summers, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's something for the listeners to think about too, is that you don't have to be, you know, private practice is not all or nothing. You can, and I think it's the smartest too, start on the side of another job while you're getting ramped up, while you're getting your name out, while you're starting to build that word of mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. I like that. I think I might have fallen into that trap of thought as well that like, if you need a full-time income and you go to private practice, then you would do it full-time. Yeah. Or it would be all or nothing. Like how could you possibly balance your time between having a private practice and another job? But um, I think, yeah, a lot of people do that and it works out really well for them. Yep. Indeed. So those are my fun facts. (laughs) Excellent. I enjoyed them all. (laughs) All right. So now what I want to hear about are your five phases of a private practice. So these are the five. So, you know, at the beginning you did your like WH questions, right? Mm -hmm. For like your little fun facts or whatever about your listeners. So I have the five phases of starting a private practice and they all start with the letter P. Mm-hmm. right? Like cause speech pathologists and like alliteration or like whatever. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, so the first phase is picture your private practice. And in this phase, you really want to be thinking about what do you want your private practice to look like? And I want people to think about both, you know, how we love like, you know, short-term goals and long-term goals, right? So I want you to be thinking about, you know, in the short term, what your private practice might look like. Is it, you know, one or two days a week after school, seeing, you know, kids maybe with fluency disorders in their homes? I don't know. Like, what what does it going to look like in the short term? And then what do you want it to look like eventually? Do you want that brick and mortar private practice with employees in a waiting room and an aquarium and you know, a therapy room with all the super duper products or whatever, like, what do you want eventually versus what do you want now? That's where people have to start is to really start in this dreaming phase of picturing your, your private practice, because unless you know what you want, it's really hard to figure out where you're going, right? Mm-hmm. That like analogy of you can't really, you know, you can't build a house without plans, right? Very so, accurate. Right. So this, uh, this picture, your private practice part of of the whole thing is about thinking and dreaming about what do you want it to look like. So that's phase number one. Phase number two is protect your private practice. This is that phase where you get all your ducks in a row. And SLPs love to get their ducks in a row. Am I mm-hmm. right? Oh yes, girl. Love Live it. for the organization. <laughs> <laughs> they love it. So um this is the phase where you want to make sure that you are legally set up to be running your business the right way. And also to be thinking about how to minimize any sort of risks involved with private practice. 
SLPs are also tend to be a fairly risk averse like group of people. Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time helping make sure that people like have all of their check boxes checked off and are really, really ready to go. So this is where we're getting um, things like what, you know, what kind of documentation are you going to do? Because you do have to do documentation. We want to make sure that you have your professional liability insurance. We want to make sure that you have your business license if the town that you live in requires it. Some people want to dive in right away and get an LLC, or in some states, it's not an LLC, but it's a PLLC. You know, people want to you know, incorporate their business. They want to come up with the perfect name. They want to get a trademark. Uh, not all of those things are necessary from the very, very beginning, but there are certain steps that everyone has to do in order to be really set up and ready to move on to stage three or phase three, which is promote your private practice. So you can't start seeing clients until your business is truly set up and ready and prepared and protected to start to actually do the marketing to see your first clients. So the promote phase is all about getting those first clients. And you know, when I was first getting started, the first thing I did was order business cards, right? And I went to uh, vistaprint.com and I ordered my little business cards and I felt so official. And then they came in the mail and I put them in my purse. I was so excited. And then, you know, I kept like giving them out, but giving them out to those little like fish bowls at restaurants to try to win the free like lunch or whatever. Uh (laughs) And, and I couldn't figure out, you know, why I wasn't getting any referrals. Well, obviously I wasn't giving my little business cards to like the right people at Mm -hmm. all. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the promote phase is about thinking about, you know, who else knows your ideal private clients? Who, you know, and who knows you and your clinical skills? Is it, you know, people that you went to grad school with? Is it, you know, former coworkers? Is it um, your aunt who runs a support group for kids with autism? You know, I don't know. You have to really be thinking about how are you going to start to get your name out there with the kind of people who need you and need your services, right? You know, we like to think about, you know, well, who's your ideal population or who do you like to work with? recognize that other people have that exact same population that they want to work with too, right? If you love working with kids with autism or teenagers with autism, there are occupational therapists who also love to work with teenagers with autism. There are, you know, social workers that work with that population. There's all kinds of people who work with that population, right? Those are the kind of connections you want to start to be making so that they can start to refer people to you, right? Because you, word of mouth doesn't just happen, like people you know, say, oh, well, I want word of mouth. How do I get word of mouth? Well, you know, you have to tell people about your practice, first of all. Mm-hmm. And you also have to do a good job with people so they want to refer you, you know, to a client who they've been working with or whatever. So the promote phase is really about getting, you know, your first client, but also like your first batch of clients to really start to build your practice. So um, for those of you keeping track at home, we had the picture, protect, promote, and now phase four is called get paid. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about this before, but phase four is where you really think about, okay, do I, do I want to be private pay? If so, how much do I charge? And how are, how are people actually going to pay me? Do I want to do insurance? Do I want to try to do a school contract? If I want to work with adults, do I, how do I get Medicare approval, Right. So these are the kind of things that you need to start to work out 
as well as thinking about things like taxes and tax deductions. You, this is a real business. I teach people how to start real legitimate businesses. This is not like under the table babysitting money or something, right? So you need to be keeping track of all of your earned income, but you also want to be able to take those necessary tax deductions that the government allows you to take, which helps offset your income so that you can pay less money in taxes. So this part is something that, you know, I think that a lot of SLPs have um, some uh, trepidation about charging for our services because people feel like, well, you know, I, I don't know, like I would do this for free. But the truth is you have done this for free. You've done this for free every time you've stayed late and not gotten paid for it, every time you've been working on, you know, reports on the weekend, every time you've bought therapy materials um, for your clients and not been reimbursed for them, every time, every year that's gone by that you haven't gotten a raise or haven't gotten a good raise, like you've worked a lot for free. And private practice isn't about trying to like get all the money, but you do have to make sure that you're not working for free. Otherwise your business won't like that won't work, right? Private mm -hmm. practices are businesses. Yeah. And so a <laughs> lot of what I do is, is help, you know, people stay helping people, people at their core but start to realize that they can be both. You can be both a helping people person and a business person and be really good at being both of those things without losing, you know, your heart and your compassion and your drive. Um, those two things can work together, right? That's, yeah, that's good. I'm so glad you point that out because I think um, a lot of us tend to err on one side or the other. And it's nice to know that we can and we need to balance both of those, especially yeah. if we want this to work and continue. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right. So so that's the get paid um, for phase four and then pay. Uh, yep. Sorry. OK, so I have another question about oh, yeah, sure. the getting paid stage. Yeah. So. Let's say someone's like, all right, I'm going to start off by just accepting um, private pay right now. So yeah. what's going to be my request? Will it be different based on uh, the different types of clients I see? Like some might be more involved. Some might need more materials that I'll provide. So I kind of need to build that charge in. Like, is that what people think? Or do they do just like a a blanket one sum no matter what and then how do they come up with that number great question so i one of the things people ask me all the time is you know what's the going rate for speech mm -hmm. therapy services or they'll say well what's the going rate in manhattan or in kansas city i don't you know i don't know i don't live in those places <laughs> but you know, I think it's, you don't really want to compare yourself to some sort of arbitrary going rate because you don't know whose skills you're comparing yourself to, right? Mm -hmm. If you, if you are fairly new to the field and you hear that the quote unquote going rate is, you know, $125 an hour or, you know, more, but it doesn't matter how much it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, great. That sounds fabulous. I'll do that. Right. You could be, you know, apples and oranges different from the provider who has, you know, 30 years of practice and, you know, has a clinical specialty in a certain area. And that's, you know, there, that's why I worry about the whole going rate thing, because it's not the same as like a slice of pizza, right? Or like babysitting, right? People have different clinical skills. 
When it comes to charging, you do have to actually charge the same amount to all of your clients. You can have, you know, some people, you know, um, if you're traveling to people, maybe they might put a travel fee in there. But you do want to have, you know, a pretty blanket across the board fee that you're charging for your services. And I recommend starting with something that you feel comfortable with and that reflects the value that you are providing to the field given your level of expertise and like years of experience. I think a lot of people start off, you know, a little bit on the lower end, which I think is totally fine as a place to start. As you get more years of experience, as you do more continuing education, as maybe you get some more advanced certifications, as you start to, you know, really gain that experience, you can, should, and should increase your prices, right? I got a letter from my accountant last year that the price of her, um, her accounting services were going to go up. And she said, you know, she hadn't raised her rates in nine years. Well, that's a long time. I was like, Carolyn, <laughs> come on, like you haven't learned anything in nine years, like your skill, you know? So like, as you start to grow, don't be afraid to start to charge more as your level of expertise grows. And you mentioned like materials and whatnot. If you are, are giving, you know, if, if your clients have access to, you know, new, whether it's new therapy techniques or new therapy materials, or let's say you add some sort of like um, equipment in your private practice or whatever, those are all reasons why you can add your you know, add on to your prices and feel good about that, right? So mm -hmm. I think that, you know, you just need to start with a number that feels comfortable for you and go up from there. It's, it's a lot easier to start on the little bit lower end and go up versus starting too high and then feeling like you got to figure out how to come down. Mm, yeah. Okay. That's really good advice. Thank you. Because no I think I was, I was looking for a number. I'm like, what's everybody else charging? That's what I'll charge. But I like the point that you made that it, it depends on the value of the services that you're providing and what you're bringing to the table. That's what you need to be charging people. Not what somebody else who is doing their CF is charging or somebody right. else who is a specialist in a very specific area of our practice and that's like all they've done for 25 years. You know? <laughs> well, right. Cause I have a lot of people who, who join my programs and whatnot, who are, who are older and who are like heading toward retirement. And those people have decades of experience and, and they say, well, you know, I don't know, what should I charge like this? And I'm like, no, you should charge more than that. <laughs> you know, you have, you have more experience to offer, right? We can, you can get to that price that you really want to charge like eventually. Right. Mm. But, mm -hmm. but start off, at a place that feels comfortable and then you can, you can go up from there. Okay. All right. I'm ready for, um, the fifth phase. phase. Five. Yeah. All right, so the fifth and, um, kind of final phase, cause it goes on for a while is prosper in private practice. So in the prosper phase is really when people start to, you know, start to grow and start to grow to their desired level. You know, some people want to be small and on the side, like forever, right? There's one woman that I work with, she, she actually is retired and she does accent modification services in like the Bronx. And that's, she has grandkids that she takes care of and she wants to spend time with, she has friends that she wants to hang out with. So she just has her small private practice, you know, however many hours a week, and that's perfect for her. I have other people who are buying, you know, having more and more locations, right? like five locations, right? Five brick and mortar locations, hundreds of staff members, 
you like thousands of clients, that's another option too, right? You can't, so you cannot get to that level until you like get your first client, right? Every private practice begins with one client. Theirs did and yours will too, right? But starting to think about where that growth is. There's also people who really are excited about leadership and are excited about starting to hire employees or um, uh, independent contractors, assistants. And there's some people who really like, uh, like that and they want to have speech therapy, but they also want to have multidisciplinary services. And there's other people who are like, yeah, no, thanks. I just want this to be, you know, all me. And then, so that's about, you know, hiring. And then other people really want to offer more and more services. People want to add telepractice. They want to add, you know, parent groups. They want to add literacy services and reading tutoring and I don't know, whatever, all kinds of aquatic therapy. I, who knows? Hippotherapy. You know, there's some people who really want to continue to grow in all of these exciting ways. And there's other people who just want to be small. So that, that prosper phase, I feel like is where people really get to their desired level, wherever that is. And those, those, I talked about the five phases, right? So the first two are foundations that you really can't do anything else until you do them. The picture and the protect, you have to do that first before you do anything else. The last two phases really think of the like recycle logo, right? Like the little arrows. So like um, promote, get paid, prosper, promote, get paid, prosper. And it kind of goes in a circle, like indefinitely until you get to that level that you want to be at. And so all successful private practices go through those five phases. And I think it's really nice for people to kind of know what those phases are and feel like they know like what phase they're in and what phase is coming next too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. All right. Well, that was highly enlightening, Jenna. Thank you so much. It is clear that this is your area of expertise. (laughs) Well, thank you. I, you know, it's something that, you know, has really been a calling, you know, you talked about, um, I forget what word you used earlier, but zone of genius or something, but you know, I really, I like helping people transform from one state to another. So whether it's, you know, patients, going from, you know, what, you know, having had a stroke and have, have aphasia to being, you know, able to, you know, communicate independently to, you know, grad students who want to be speech pathologists and then become them to speech pathologists who, you know, have regular jobs at schools and hospitals in the eyes or whatever. And for whatever reason, maybe feel stuck and want that flexibility and want to become private practitioners. And it's just been really a cool journey to be able to help all of these different kinds of people and um and help people reach their goals i think that that's one of my you know you said primary motivators i like to help people achieve what i think for them might be feel like more than what they saw for themselves mm-hmm. and it's really fun to be able to arm people with information and confidence that they can actually do these things so that they can have that life that they always imagined yeah that's awesome Well, Jenna, how would you kind of summarize and wrap up um, private practices and the work that you do? Yeah, so I think that private practice is a wonderful option for people who want to take control of their professional and their personal lives. So if you're the kind of person 
who wants to be able to, you know, set your own schedule and choose what clients you work with and choose, you know, how you work and where you work and all that kind of other stuff. Um, I think that private practice is worth exploring. You know, there are, it's, it's not easy, right? Otherwise everyone would do it, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot to, a lot of considerations for, for billing and, you know, thinking about overhead and thinking about, you know, finances and cash flow and all those kind of other things, which I didn't, you know, quite touch on quite as much. I do more in my courses, but, you know, I think that, you know, for people who are interested in making a change because wherever they are, maybe they like their, their setting or they used to like their setting, you know, they still like their profession anyway. They still like being a speech pathologist, but maybe you're feeling like they're more limited than they want to be. I think that this is a really wonderful option for people to to try mm, excellent all right so what is your parting thought something about adventure and private practices so um you know i think that you know private practice is always an adventure i think it's an adventure worth going on and worth worth trying and and but not by yourself, right? I think that adventures are more fun with other people. And, you know, I think that private practice can be lonely and also like starting to think about starting private practices can be lonely and it doesn't have to be. Mm. So I also recommend that if you are thinking about, you know, starting a practice, reach out to me, reach out to others who have done it, you know, to get that support, because this isn't something that you have to do alone. And it's not something that you should do alone. Mm, excellent. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your expertise. I've loved it. And I can't wait for everybody else to get to hear this. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And it wasn't scary at all. Um, <laughs> to your first uh, question about something I was, you know, whatever scared of, but this was great. All right, good. Super. Yay. Being on the other side of the microphone. It's absolutely, like, it's, it's good too. It's comfortable. <laughs> totally. Jenna, I want to thank you so much for your passion, your openness, and your desire to uplift your fellow SLPs. It was a delight to chat with you and get to know you better on the podcast. Thanks for investing in our field with your passion to help SLPs make changes in their career path. Check out the show notes with some links that Jenna's provided for a free private practice roadmap and to hear her podcast where she interviews a diverse group of private practice owners. And to whet your appetite, let me just tell you that there are SLPs with private practices in the basement of a church that practice hippotherapy that's horse therapy, in case you haven't heard of it before, and teletherapy from Bali. This SLP is obviously living her best life in Bali and practicing. I mean, that's amazing, you guys. You can literally do anything with a private practice. The options, yeah, it's amazing. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Next week's guest is Dr. Jessica Hoover of Purdue University. Jessica is returning to the Speech Uncensored podcast to discuss methods of assessing respiratory function and motor speech disorders. Jessica was previously on episode two of season three, discussing the SpeechVive, a wearable device for patients with Parkinson's. 
Um, you know the drill. Please subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's very much appreciated. And um, also something new and fun. Uh, give me a shout out on Anchor FM and I'll add you to my special upcoming episode. So go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash S-U-P voicemail to leave me a voice message about how the podcast has nourished your mind and helped you flourish. All right, that's everything from me. Have a wonderful day, everybody.